great to be back with you. I know I was away for a couple weekends that first weekend in January. Uh, I like to take that time and give it back to my family and recharge a bit after a busy holiday season. And then last weekend, I had the privilege, I was invited to be with one of our other Alliance churches to do an elder retreat with them on Friday and Saturday and then um, preach in their services on Sunday. But uh, to tell you this, and, and God's doing amazing things in the Alliance all over the world and in particularly in the church where I was at, and I love the pastor dearly, but... Um, Last Sunday, I have to tell you, it was about this hour, and we were, we were I was getting ready to preach, but it was during the worship service, and I was just observing and worshiping, and it was, it was maybe this is just, it was for me, but I was looking, and I, in that moment, I was like, I miss my ACAC family, <laughs> and, um, and I say that, um, you know, we're just a very small part of God's kingdom, but for me in that moment... I was so, so appreciative of the beauty and the rich diversity that we have in our church. And I just felt like I needed to remind you that God would say, do not take this for granted. What we have here is special. What God has done in the history of this church to bringing us where we are is special. We haven't arrived doesn't make us better than any other congregation. It does not. And there's a lot of work to do. But look around you. This doesn't happen everywhere, and it's special, and I missed you, so great to be back. Um, Last week, too, I want to thank Pastor Ross for reminding us and and doing a a great job kicking off this series called Justice for All, but he, he reminded us that any conversation about justice must begin with God, that he is the one who establishes what justice is and what it means in our world. As I was praying and preparing for this message in the series, uh, I ran across uh, a writing from a pastor that I admire. His name's Pastor Scott Sauls, and he writes this. To talk about Jesus and be silent about justice misses so very much concerning Jesus. To talk about justice and be silent about Jesus misses so very much concerning justice. I really appreciated the time that Pastor Ross spent breaking down those two words in the Bible, justice and righteousness. Just and righteous, just and right, just and right. The Bible repeats that and puts them together over and over again. And those words together describe the heart of God, both who he is and what God does. And it tells us who we need to be if we're going to follow after God's heart. And the ideas, the concepts of justice and righteousness, they're not found in the margins of the Bible. These are core concepts in God's kingdom. To give you an example of that, if you did a word search on justice and righteousness, justice is mentioned around 450 times in the Bible. Righteousness is mentioned around 350 times in the Bible. If you put that together, that's nearly 800 times. Mentioned more than love, mentioned more than grace, mentioned more than faith, mentioned more than hell. We see these words frequently linked together in the Bible. However, and again, as Pastor Ross taught us last weekend, that righteousness, being righteous and just, doesn't just mean being a good person and taking down bad guys. 
It means much more than that. Being just and righteous means God's people, us, his followers, that we are out in the world actively engaged and promoting in the goodness of God's kingdom by helping those who are needy, helping those who are vulnerable, and protecting and fighting for those who are oppressed. We see this in the book of Job. You know the the story of Job. The accuser, Satan, goes before God and kind of points his finger to Job and says, I want to attack him. And God gives him credit knowing Job's heart. And Job loses everything, right? Job loses it all, his possessions, family. The enemy takes it all by God allowing it. And then Job's friends are accusing Job, man, you must have done something wrong to deserve this. And Job, defending his righteousness to his friends, says this in the 29th chapter. Job says, all who heard me praised me. All who saw me spoke well of me. For I assisted the poor in their need and the orphans who required help. I helped those without hope and they blessed me. And I caused the widow's heart to sing with joy. Look at this. Everything I did was honest, said Job. Righteousness covered me like a robe, and I wore justice like a turban. He continues and said, I served as eyes for the blind and feet for the lame. I was a father to the poor and assisted strangers who needed help. Job connected his righteousness before God by helping those in need. He was righteous not just because he avoided evil, but because he stood for the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the poor. He stood up against anybody who messed with them. And that is in part what made him righteous. So on a weekend when we honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we're going to look at one of the verses that he most frequently quoted some may not even recognize that this comes directly out of God's word because he paraphrased it and quoted it so often as we do that I want to show you a picture here this is a picture of the civil rights memorial that can be found at the southern poverty law center in Montgomery Alabama it was dedicated in 1989 and designed by Maya Lin. You'll see that it says, I don't know if you can read it, until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. When, she, when they designed this, it, the, the inspiration behind this memorial came from that paraphrase in the famous I Have a Dream speech that Dr. King gave on August 28, 1963. And that paraphrase came directly from the Old Testament in the book of Amos. Let's look at it. It's Amos chapter 5, verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Today, we're going to look at these prophetic words from a man named Amos. And we will hopefully come to recognize this spiritual truth. That worship without justice is just noise. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your presence that is here in this place. As we look at the importance of us, your people, living out justice and righteousness in our world, my prayer today is that we would not be inspired 
that it would not be about inspiration, that today would be about transformation. Now, only your Holy Spirit can do that work. So would you come? Would you remove any blinders in our eyes? Remove any plugs that we may have in our ears that keep us from hearing your voice and seeing how you move? Anything that would keep our heart cold and hard, would you soften it today? Do that in us. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. amen. So before we get to the book of Amos, let's, let's talk about that context and who he was. So who was the prophet Amos? He was a shepherd. He was a fig tree farmer. And he came from a small town that was about 10 miles south of the city of Jerusalem. Now at the time of Amos, um, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was ruled by King Uzziah, and that is a part of the kingdom where Amos came from. However, this book of Amos and the prophecy that God gave to him to give to the Israelites was actually in the northern kingdom. So he goes up, and the northern kingdom was called Israel. And at the time, they were under the rule of Jeroboam. And understand that this northern kingdom, Israel, they were living in a season of prosperity. They were a prosperous and privileged people. However, because of that and for other reasons, their hearts had grown cold to the needs of those around them. To the point that they were taking advantage of those in need. And they were feeding their own concerns. More than almost any other book of the Bible, the book of Amos holds God's people accountable for their ill treatment of others. So here's how the book of Amos begins. And I would encourage you today and even this week, it's not a long book, but go through and read the entire book of Amos. What you'll find is at the very beginning in chapter 1, God speaks through the prophet Amos and he calls out Israel's enemies. And he gets very direct about it. I'm not going to read, obviously, the entire chapter, but he begins by calling out the people of Damascus. Again, these are enemies of Israel. These are enemies of God's people. And he says, the people of Damascus have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. And then he says, why? Because they beat down my people in Gilead. And then Amos turns his attention to the people of Gaza. Again, says, you have sinned again and again. God's not going to let it go unpunished. Why? Because of these people of Gaza. Because they sent whole villages in exile, selling them as slaves to Edom. Then he turns to Tyre. They have chased down their relatives, the Israelites, with swords, showing no mercy. Then Amos turns his attention to the Ammonites. Why? Because they ripped open pregnant women with their swords. Now understand this. Israel, while Amos was preaching, would have been saying, Amen, preach it, Amos. Why? Because they're calling out God's enemies. He would have been calling them out saying, you're going to get what you deserved. You have done this. And the people of Israel would have been celebrating, waving flags, banners, tambourines, saying, come on, get them, God. How many know we like it when God calls out our enemies? We like it when God says, oh, I'm taking them down. Because, and you're like, yes, praise God. But how many know it's a different story when all of a sudden God turns and speaks to you? It's a different story when all of a sudden God's anger moves towards his people and says, no, I'm going to hold you accountable for your sin too. 
And that's exactly what happened with the people of Israel. In chapter 2, Amos now turns. His attention moves from all the enemies outside these four walls, and he turns to God's people. And in chapter 2, beginning at verse 6, he says, This is what the Lord says. The people of Israel, God's people, have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. Now, I want you to really think about this. Why? And here's, we're going to go through them. Here's why and how they have sinned. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman corrupting my holy name. At the religious festivals, they lounge in clothing. Their debtors put up as security. In the house of their gods, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. This is God's people. These are the very people that were to bring light and hope into the world. And now God's people had begun to look just like the world around them. It is God's people now who are selling off needy people for goods. They were taking advantage of the helpless. They were using women immorally. They literally were showing up to worship gatherings wearing clothes that were paid for by those who they had taken advantage of. Drunk on their own economic success and intent on strengthening their own position, the people of Israel had lost the concept of not only caring for those in need, but defending those in need. Think of this. Israel, once the oppressed, now had become the great oppressor. From the outside, I told you, in Jeroboam's reign, they were a prosperous people. They were a privileged people. From the outside, everyone would have thought that Israel is blessed. However, internally, their hearts and their lives were filled with moral decay. Rather than seeking justice, mercy, and walking in humility, they embraced arrogance, idolatry, self-righteousness, and materialism. And God finally had enough of it. And he called a shepherd He called a fig tree farmer to go north. And here's what God said through that prophet Amos. He said, Israel, I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. He says, take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Do you catch the seriousness of what God is saying to his very own people? He's saying, you come and you gather just like this. You give your offerings. You offer up your sacrifices to me and to my house. You sing your songs. I speak Jesus. And what is it? God goes like this. It's noise and I don't want any of it. Have you ever been in the car with your kids sometimes and they play their music and you're like, what am I listening to? God's people, their worship had become like that to the Heavenly Father. 
Think about that for us. Worship without justice is just noise. All the sacrifice, all the giving, all the rejoicing, all the religious traditions and and sacrifice, it was nothing. It was just noise because they ignored justice and righteousness. Religious devotion is meaningless if it ignores bringing help, hope, and healing to those around us that are in need of it. Righteous justice is founded upon the principles of what Jesus said were the greatest commandments. Do you remember when the religious leaders came to Jesus and they tried to trap him by saying, Jesus, they asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And he responds by giving them two, actually. He says, the greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second is equally as important, which is loving your neighbor as yourself. Righteous justice is founded on the greatest commandments that Jesus gives us. Much like the prophet Amos, Jesus did the same thing in his day. He confronts the religious leaders of the day. He calls out the Pharisees. And in Luke's gospel, chapter 11, Jesus says, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. And then he says, you're fools. You're fools. Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside, how? By giving to the poor and you will be clean all over. What sorrow awaits you Pharisees, you religious people, for you are careful to tithe even even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you what? You ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. You had a group of religious people that were so concerned with doing every detail of God's law. I'm gonna take this small herb from my garden and I'm gonna make sure because I need to give God a tenth of this. I need to make sure that I wear the right clothing, that I don't eat this and I I do do this and that I don't work on that day or I, I go here, that I don't do that. And God says, you're focused on the wrong thing I've called you to to love and to serve justice and righteousness by caring those who are in need how many times do we fall guilty of doing the same thing God would say to us don't get so wrapped up in, in 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 all of those things that you are blind to the needs of those around you that you're blind to caring for and protecting and standing up for those who can't do that for themselves God's justice is fueled by love. Love for the oppressed, love for the outcast, love for the overlooked, the poor, the widow, those cast aside and powerless, the immigrant, the refugee, the homeless, the sick, the abandoned and the persecuted. And if we are going to be a people to love God fully and faithfully, then we must love who God loves. Otherwise, our worship without justice is just noise. When God's people don't pursue justice, we become complicit to evil. It's exactly what happened to Israel, and Amos calls them out on it. And it's exactly what has happened in our nation's past. In the people of God, it has happened. 
In April of 1963, during the Civil Rights Movement, there was a public statement released from eight white religious leaders in Alabama. The statement was directed to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and those leading and participating in peaceful protests against segregation. This wasn't just a random eight people. Eight clergymen, pastors, rabbi, priests, I don't have time to read you their whole public statement, but I want to read you two incredibly powerful and sad statements that they wrote publicly, and they are this. We recognize the natural impatience of people who feel that their hopes are slow in being realized, but we are convinced that these demonstrations are unwise and untimely. This was from the religious people. This was from God's people in 1963. Religious leaders who found Dr. King's fight for justice too extreme. That statement prompted a powerful response that was handwritten by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from a jail cell in Birmingham City, Alabama. It was a letter that would become known as a letter from a Birmingham jail. And rather than read you a portion of that letter, I'm going to ask that you listen carefully to the powerful words in his own voice. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like a mighty stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. Was not John Bunyan an extremist? I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below that environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation and the world or in dire need of creative extremists.
as followers of Jesus and God's people, we have a responsibility to pursue justice and righteousness. That responsibility involves speaking out against racism where we see it. That is a responsibility to pursue justice in society and to fight against any system that leads to injustice. That pursuit calls us to extend love and care to the immigrant and the refugee. That pursuit of justice and righteousness calls us to protect the rights of unborn children, the elderly, and those with special needs. That pursuit of justice and righteousness calls us to care for the poor, the homeless, the widow, and the orphan. Some may be here today and say, Pastor, would you just preach Jesus? Would you just preach the Bible? Let me tell you, this is the gospel. This is the Bible. And the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be for Christ? Will we be extremists for hate or will we be extremists for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? Church, we cannot be a church that just casually comes every Saturday night or Sunday or online and offers our wonderful songs and music and gives so faithfully from offerings or serve in kids and student ministries, study God's word and take it all in in a beautiful church like this. If we do not pursue justice and righteousness, otherwise worship without justice is just noise. Would you stand to your feet today? As we leave, I want to leave you with two challenges and two requests. As you leave today, we have put together prayer cards that look like this, and the ushers will have them. You can grab one on your way out. Tomorrow is a day where our nation will remember and honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And here's what I'm asking our church family to do. Would you join me in prayer at 6 p.m. tomorrow. You can determine the length of time, but I would love it if our entire church family at the same time tomorrow at 6 p.m. would fall on their knees and pray. And this prayer card is gonna lead you in that, and here are the things I'm asking you to pray for. First of all, I want us to begin by giving thanks. Thanks to God for the progress that we have made in fulfilling Dr. King's dream, though we still have a ways to go. I want us to give thanks for a congregation like this. It has its challenges. It's not easy. But it's a gift to the body of Christ. Let's give thanks. Let us pray that God's peace and justice to reign here in the north side, in our community, to reign in our city, to reign in the state, to reign in our nation and to reign in the world. Would you join with me in praying for the poor, praying for the powerless, praying for the marginalized and vulnerable? Would you join me in praying that the Holy Spirit would do a work in us, that he would identify all of us and our, our biases, our blind spots, the things, our perspectives that we bring that hold us back, from protecting and standing for the vulnerable. Let us pray that we have the strength 
then to take action, to not just be changed in, internally that it, it, it's good intentions, but it actually leads to us doing something about it, corporately and you as individuals. Tomorrow at 6 p.m., parents, I can't encourage you enough. It's a great opportunity for you to have, your, have this conversation with your kids, to join in them and let them see you fall on your knees and pray and have them do the same. And here's my last request. I'm encouraging everybody, you can Google this and find it pretty easily. Look up a letter to Birmingham from a Birmingham jail cell and read that letter. It'll take you about seven or eight minutes. And I believe if you do that, it will be a reminder that it's so easy, even today, for God's people to slip from the ones that may have been oppressed to being the oppressor. Do those two things if you would. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. We do thank you for how far we have come, though we have a lot further to go. Thank you for the diversity of this beautiful congregation. It is a gift. May we never take that for granted, and may we do everything we can to fight and protect it. Lord, I ask that as we leave, even this afternoon, this evening, through tomorrow, in the days ahead, Holy Spirit, work on our hearts. As parents, help us to raise a generation that values kingdom diversity, that values fighting for the vulnerable, fighting for the oppressed. Help us to do that well in the name of Jesus. Amen. You're dismissed.